Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, man. Hey, Danny. I want to clear something up. Well, just clarify something. Okay. So I was editing last week's episode and I was listening to uh, our review of Paddington 2 and I was feeling pain listening to my own ramblings about the movie, which were... You know, I didn't take notes beforehand. It was all a bit unprepared. And I was struggling to express something about uh, the way that the movie deals with immigration. I don't think I did a very good job of it. So I just wanted to take this time. I know a lot of our listeners were probably thinking this guy's off as nuts. We've got a lot of letters about this. He's been, he's been drinking heavily lately. He probably, you know, hand slept for 48 hours. What is he on about? He's lost it. He's, he's lost his whole mojo. It's he's gone. He's lost it. Yeah, I, I was with you since episode 10, and after that, no thank you. Goodbye, moving on, back to Empire, whatever. So uh, I'm going to try to rescue that now. Basically, the thing that I wanted to say about this movie was that, the, so the Paddington series has a very sort of clear message about, like, accepting others. And I think that the second film, maybe I'm just projecting onto it, but I felt like it feels like a very post-Brexit movie, and it feels like film that's made by people who want to react against the current climate and create like a film that you know is uh demonstrates everything that things aren't like now you know that sort of shows you yeah. the, the world that like the way the world ought to be and in that way i think the films are political because messages about immigration are political it's obviously a very hot button political issue so given that it has a kind of a political edge to it my problem with it or like my sort of mild misgiving is that it has this portrayal of anti-immigration sentiment as kind of deriving from a particular kind of ill-educated curtain twitcher type like peter capaldi right yeah and that the opposition in the movie is just like the people with the correct attitudes towards others like the brown family and the people with like bad attitudes like peter capaldi who's who's almost the only the working class character in the movie except for um the guy in the garbage truck yeah, but yeah. he's got this like distinctive working class London accent. He's a bloke, and he's a bit of a he's a bit of a racist. I read the Sun. Yeah, exactly. He's like a Sun reading like racist type. Whereas it's the kind of like posh heroes like the Browns who are like the good people. Yeah, and they yeah, live yeah. in this like insanely fancy house and stuff. And I think that there's a mu- there's a slight thing where it, it sort of plays into a particular kind of self satisfied tolerance, certain sorts of like middle class like London liberals or just liberals generally, who see issues like Brexit and Trump as basically being caused by ignorant people who don't know the sort of correct facts and they just need to be like re-educated and sure. given tolerance classes and turned into good people. But immigration and racism are structural problems and we have racist institutions in society. And I think that if you're going to make a film that has an unmistakable political edge, 
it should deal in some way with the institutional issues. Otherwise, you're only telling part of the story. Like it's a, it's such a moral film. It's got such a moral message to it. But I think that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take as many risks as you would have to to give a better message, basically. And I think Paddington Three, the villain should be someone who works at the Home Office. They should be like the guy from the EPA in uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. some sort of functionary who's just like doing his job but is you know works for a racist institution and that's why they want to deport Paddington it should be like that that blog I was reading from the end of the last episode written by the immigration lawyer who's sort of detailing all the ways like Paddington's living here illegally and he'd be hassled in this way and that way and like that's the reality of dealing with immigration you know as a legal and political issue like today that that's the experience of immigrants like it's not just like the guy down the street who's like yelling racist abuse at you but it's also like the government that wants to send you back to a country where you'll be murdered so i think you know they should be trying to send paddington back to peru my opinion and that is my piece we lost a second there poor pads paddington i mean all the bears seem very nice but that's because they've uh they're the only bears that speak english right in the world because they met that explorer. He taught them. <laughs> he taught them English. That's why they speak in a very posh RP way. Yeah, maybe like in the next in the next uh, movie, there'll be like another unknown bear who's like the evil brother of Aunt Lucy or something like that. And he'll be some sort of yeah. like, he'll arrive in London. He'll want to take Paddington back to Peru. Yeah, but they'll still defend his immigration status because it shouldn't, you know, it depend shouldn't depend on, on whether you're nice or not. Exactly. It's just yeah. a basic human right. Yeah, and then right. and then by showing him that kindness, he then changes his mind. Such as the painting way. And then you know he becomes a nice character. That's why. And then and then they're they available. Like, and, they, uh, and then they campaign for labour and get, get the Tories out of office. Yeah, and he like mauls Theresa May. He mauls Theresa, <laughs> tears her face off, <laughs> eats cuts like cuts out her heart and eats it. Yeah, like the Golden Compass. Like in the Golden Compass. The golden Compass. What am I fucking talking about? The Northern Lights. Don't oh, give me that fucking, fucking Americanized bullshit. Cinema. Anyway, Sam, what's this podcast about? Good question, Danny. This is a podcast all about a team of legends fighting evil. Fueled by his restored faith in humanity and inspired by Danny Moran's selfless act in the previous podcast, Sam Foster enlists newfound ally Katie Rogers to face an even greater threat. Together, Sam and Katie work quickly, and I'm talking really quickly, like 20 minutes top so you don't get too bored, to recruit a team to stand against this newly awakened enemy. Despite the formation of an unprecedented League of Heroes, Sam, Katie... Dougal McQueen, James W. of Tooting Beck, and The Flash, it may be too late to save the planet from an assault of catastrophic proportions. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2017 film Justice League. It isn't, though. It's a film podcast about films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a man with a kind of weird, wobbly, indistinct, flappy pink area where his upper lip should be, Danny Moran. Hello. On this week, we review hotly award-tipped movie Mudbound, a sprawling period drama which curiously stars Mary J. Blige, the singer-turned-actress who famously sung that she wanted no more drama. What is it, Blige? Drama or no more drama? (laughs) Make up your mind, Blige. And we review the hotly anticipated blockbuster Justice League, in which the iconic DC superhero Cyborg battles the equally iconic DC supervillain Steppenwolf, with the help of equally as good but less popular superheroes such as Aquabro, Flashy Flash, Batfella, Wonder Dame, and Superguy. Was their action to the film, to quote iconic line from Cyborg, Booyah! Or was their reaction to the film, to quote an iconic line from Cyborg, Boo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned I, I to find out. I was saying boo, yeah. <laughs> Plus, 
we discussed the announcement that George Clooney is adapting Catch-22 into a major, major, major prestige miniseries, <laughs> and the news that Korean author Parch and Wook is adapting a Jean Le Carré book into a TV series with Alexander Skarsgård set to star. Finally, that Chan Wook Le Carré Skarsgård collaboration we've all been dreaming of. All of which should leave me just enough time to read the newly updated list of films that don't involve a sexual predator either in front of or behind the camera. Let's have a look here. Nope. Uh, sorry, it's just one film. <laughs> it's The Train Coming to the Station, 1896. <laughs> the Lumiere Brothers. Stand up, guys. That's hard hitting, uh, incisive Hollywood satire there. That's satire, mate. Cutting. you've been hard at work at a social media call face you posted on facebook saw this question on twitter by a chap called at joe simpson 79 what is your favorite not necessarily the best three film run of consecutive films by any director uh, so we got a pretty good response to this people really really uh, dug into this one um and it's one of those things where all these questions made me feel like an idiot there's all these like movies i haven't fucking seen yeah. this is just disgusting i mean almost everyone who listens to the podcast is more qualified to be hosting it than me i think that's what I've decided. Um, but anyway, people have you know, given me a lot so to... So that's your cachet. You're the charming, clueless guy. Who, I'm like... I'm the mayor. Yeah, you're the mayor. I'm like, I was watching a movie by Kubrick. You're like, Kubrick? Kubrick? <laughs> that's not a word. Yes. What does that mean? What is that? Oh, sorry, let me just stop you that. Kubrick? Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> None of our listeners will have heard of Kubrick. Can you please explain what that means? It's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant impression. <laughs> working on that? um yeah so um i think that this the answer to this question is like most interesting with directors who have had extensive filmographies because i saw some people who responded to the initial question and one guy was like just had two his two lists were just every film made by dennis villeneuve he was like those classic three film runs like he's only made six films it was like (laughs) the first three and then the second three and yeah. like that doesn't really count, but uh, but yeah, no, we do have like a bunch of options. I don't think we really have time to go through all of them, but maybe we can get off for a selection. What 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 leapt out at you? Well, Chris highlighted John Carpenter with The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing, but he's generally considered to have like one of the best runs of a director, like from Dark Star to The Thing. Like every movie in make is like either like a, a classic or a cult classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Thing is probably his best movie. If only he'd made Halloween I've, after the I have fog. seen that. And it's bloody um, good. And Jules highlighted Ridley Scott, The Duelist, Alien, and Blade Runner, his first three films, and easily his best films. And I think if you just remove that from his Possibly his only good films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, his entire reputation is kind of staked on those first three films, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Andy Poole cited Kubrick, which is, like you are saying, quite a limited filmography, where you feel like you could just take any, any three, three movies yeah. from, like, Lolita onwards. Or when when he become a genius, Paths of Glory or something. Yeah. So like there's last ten movies. He went for Doctor Strange Life, A Space Odyssey, and A Clockwork Orange. I personally would go for A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. Those are the best three, <laughs> I think. That's a very good. A that run. is a very good selection. Uh, but yeah, I was trying to think of ones like uh, problem. Like it's true that like it's rare for like a really prolific filmmaker to do like three in a row that are really good. Like a lot of people were citing like Spielberg. But, like, between, he did, like, Jaws, Close Encounters, and, like, 1941, which is famously really bad. And then Raiders of Lost Ark and E.T. 
and then Temple of Doom, which is like quite bad. When did he make the Terminal? Whichever two films he made either side of that. Cash of- if you can, the Terminal, <laughs> Munich. <laughs> the best three three film run of any yeah, direction yeah, in history. Like, you know, you can do like one and two, but like the third one is always letting him down. Same like Woody Allen because he's so prolific, like. I was thinking like Annie Hall and Manhattan, but the movie in between those ones is Interiors, which no one really talks about, which is like a fine movie, but wouldn't be in like, you know. Yes, yeah, Alan probably thinks it's the best film he's ever yeah, made after Cassandra's Dream, but no one else gives a shit. Um, Morton Marifant on Twitter suggests uh, Friedkin's run of The French Connection, Exorcist and Sorcerer. And he also um, suggests John Badham's tight gene trilogy, Short Circuit, Stakeout and Bird on a Wire. I've only seen Short Circuit, but that is an excellent film. Why is it called the tight gene trilogy? Because this is the 80s and everyone's wearing really tight pastel jeans, I guess. Gotcha. Steve Gutenberg is wearing some tight jeans in that movie. I just I can only assume the other movies feature men with tight jeans. <laughs> Let's hope so, otherwise that's going to be a, so. a serious misnomer. Uh, and at Hoppen, or Hoppo, how do you pronounce that? So, I don't know if that's like... Hoppon? H-O-P-P-W-N. I don't know if that's like a uh, like a Welsh... It's supposed to be read in a Welsh Up-on. way, like Hoppon. Hoppon. Um, but anyway, he says he was was going to say Jean-Pierre Jeunet uh, with Delicatessen, City of Lost Children and Amelie, but he checked IMDb and fucking Alien Resurrection just sits there like a giant steaming pile of failure. So he goes with Finch's Seven, The Game and Fight Club, which sidesteps Finch's own Alien movie. Um, I was trying to answer this uh, and I was sort of looking up directors who who's, I've seen a lot of their movies and they kept fucking me over by having yeah, like yeah, one hard. movie that I hadn't seen. So um, Billy Wilder made Some Like It Hot and The Apartment consecutively and those are two of my favourite movies. But then like I haven't seen Witness for the Prosecution and I don't even know what was after that. So they couldn't <laughs> quite fit that in. And I was looking at Kurosawa as well. He's probably one of the directors who's... Like I've, I've seen the most number of films by a single person. Uh, but he's so prolific that again it's like quite hard to at least i haven't haven't seen like he made a kiru and seven samurai consecutively and those are both amazing but yeah yeah, didn't, yeah. haven't seen the other movies so yeah so we're very few even the shit hot directors with the exception of kurosawa who's a genius everything yeah. he touched was gold apart from his first 10 movies apparently, <laughs> which no one's heard no of one's heard no one's of. seen them uh yeah just you know i guess even the greatest directors in the world can't you know keep up that level yeah, it's mainly well. It's yeah, it's just easier to pick with the ones who have uh, got a short filmography, basically. Like it's easy to find a three, like Tarantino, you could say like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. It's a very strong run. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But he's you know only made seven films. But thank you very much for all. Thanks for all those contributions. Responses. Yeah, they were excellent, fantastic. You all did a stand-up job. You're great. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. George Clooney's latest directorial effort, Suburbicon, is in cinemas at the moment. Uh, apparently, it's not very good. It's open to a bunch of uh, two star reviews. The latest critical and commercial failure for George Clooney. Yeah, you know, once a sort of hotter shit director and it just seems to... Just, w- just churn out disasters yeah. now, yeah. Just, they're just, it's just not going well for him. But he is returning to TV, having made his name as the sexy doctor in ER, with the plans to produce and star and direct a miniseries version of Catch-22, which, if you've not read, is Joseph Heller's 1961 novel all about... Uh, so, Fighter uh, Pilot in World War Two. Yeah, Fighter Pilot in World War Two. The Catch-22 of the title refers to the fact that you have to be crazy to want to fly these planes, but if you uh, apply to not fly them, it proves that you're sane. So, is that Yeah, correct? no, it's like you have... 
the catch twenty two is you have to be like uh, insane in order to be removed from duty. But the fact but the, that the it, act oh. of wanting to not fight in the war is evidence of your own sanity, and therefore you cannot leave. That's the one, and it's you know it was this an acclaimed novel which was turned into a film in nineteen seventy with Mike Nichols, and it's a sort of uh, farce about the absurdity of war, kind of like a comedy that comes more serious as it goes on. Yeah, and Clooney is attached to take the role of Colonel Cathcart and plans to make it into a six episode run with the scripts written by Luke Davies and David Mickard and they aim to start shooting early next year there's no news of what network is going to stream it but that's I guess that's a sort of high prestige project can't see it not finding distribution quite quickly yeah absolutely uh have you seen the Mike Knuckles movie I have not me neither can't talk about that we haven't seen it though it does like this story along with uh we were talking about Amazon getting the rights to Lord of the Rings a couple of weeks ago and it just made me think that now, do you think like when people get like a big hefty tome, just the default setting is like, we'll make this into a TV show Yeah. now. Whereas before, obviously, like Lord of the Rings, if those movies didn't exist and they just got the rights now. They'd be I mean, making, just Amazon make, were probably making a TV series, imagine that. Yeah, exactly. But that would be the sort of default approach to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. I wonder if that's actually like a good thing. Like if The Godfather was released as a book now, would that be a miniseries and we'd like wouldn't have the greatest film ever made yeah i think i think that it basically it's easy to say like that film adaptations and novels are you know worse because they can't pack in all the detail that a novel can they're sort of necessarily like simplified versions but i think it's both formats are valid basically it just depends on the quality i mean there was that todd haynes um what's this is mildred pierce mildred pierce exactly it's like todd haynes made that mildred pierce miniseries and he basically included like every sentence of the novel uh in there and uh, there's also like an old movie version of mildred pierce which i haven't seen so i can't compare them directly but like you can probably make a pretty good tight domestic drama out of mildred pierce or you can make this like six hour long sprawling psychological affair which is what um the tv series is like and they're both like valid ways to go i don't know if like making it shorter would necessarily make for a worse experience or anything yeah i do feel like Maybe this is my own personal relationship with like a few TV shows I've watched recently, but I think there's an epidemic of showrunners where like I've got this five season arc and it will take sixty hours. Absolutely, and, like, you watch like my it will be boring for the first thirty hours, but don't worry, come season five, it's all gonna start paying off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, that's uh, exactly. I mean, it's exactly in a way, it's exactly how uh, studios are treating franchises now. I mean, I'm announcing yeah. my seven film universe, having not made a single one of them, and you know, we haven't created an audience yet. And the the uh, like the Netflix the Marvel TV shows are like that. Yeah. Like I watched all of Daredevil season two, and it was such a slog. It just killed off all interest in that entire universe for me because, you know, it's just treading water. The whole thing is treading water. And I think there is a bit of an attitude like that where it's like this idea of like binging or stuff, or like every product is this kind of massive thing that you ha- you sort of consume and it becomes a whole world. Yeah, yeah. Um, is is not necessarily uh, a, a good thing. But having said that. Um, you know, it might be great. Like the Catch Twenty Two TV series might be great, but I don't know if you would necessarily be like, "Thank God they can include all the details that you couldn't fit into a movie." Yeah, my only reservation about it, first of all, like the kind of tonal switch is like what makes Catch Twenty Two for me. Like when I read it, I remember finding like the beginning like a bit hard to get into. It is hard to and get then into. Yeah, it kind of really focuses down towards like the final stretch of the book, and I wonder if that's like would be a hard thing to do if you're splitting up into six episodes. And also the common complaint of this new George Clooney movie is that it's like tonally all over the place. So I'm like, I don't trust George Clooney with tone. You well, know, like, yeah. Uh, Clooney, can you pull it off? Uh, the, the new movie, it was scripted by the Coen brothers, right? 
Smurfing. Yeah, like they're very adept at doing that sort of absurd and nastiness together. But I think that they would be a good fit for Catch Twenty Two because it's very nihilistic and very, uh, very absurd, and has like very broadly drawn cartoonish characters. And uh, but it, it exists in this like awful world where nightmarish things happen for no reason. And I think that their sensibility is quite a good fit for it. And I feel like George Clooney is kind of a knockoff cohen in a way yeah yeah like he obviously loves and admires them and his films have a cohen-esque quality yeah so yeah i th- i can imagine it being bad on the basis that it w- he would try to do it in a cohen-esque way and wouldn't quite nail it that would be but that would be maybe where the you know the even money would be on that one but but you know can't can't prejudge can't judge a, a tv series by its press release no sir I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, more television series news, another sumptuous uh, bit of uh, miniseries action being helmed by a, a sort of famous director. So, in this case, it's Park Chan-wook, who um, is most famous probably as the director of Old Boy and has previously worked in the English language as the director of, you're going to remind me the name of this movie? Stoker. Stoker. And he is now adapting a John le Carre novel called The Little Drummer Girl, um, and which he's bringing to the BBC and AMC as a, as a six-part limited series. Ooh. Uh, the news, recent news about this is that he's cast Alexander Skarsgård, the sexy Tarzan himself. Ooh. Uh, Tarzan's in it. And uh, this is what it's about. In The Little Drummer Girl, a young actress strikes up an acquaintance with an enigmatic stranger, that's going to be Skarsgård, while on holiday in Greece, but it rapidly becomes apparent that his attentions are far from romantic. The stranger is Becca, an Israeli intelligence officer who entangles her in a complex and high-stakes plot which unfolds as she takes on the role of a lifetime in the, quote, theatre of the real. Whatever that means. Wow. Is that like a spy term? Um, yes. <laughs> so it's like how they call the, um, the MI6 the circus or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. Um, so Skarsgård's playing Israeli? I guess so. But he's so Aryan looking. <laughs> he's like this blonde, blue... He's like literally looks like Thor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll... Um, Tan him up. <laughs> they'll give him a racist nose or something. Um, That's exciting, though. Yeah, no, it, it does sound very exciting. The plot... The setup of the plot does sound a little bit like Stoker about a sort of young girl who encounters an enigmatic stranger who turns out to have um, like intentions that are yeah, that's sinister. true. And also sounds a bit like um, the Night Manager, the last. And it does sound a bit like the Night Manager. Like, you know, unassuming person gets becomes a spy. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that, this that meeting of um, previous successful projects. Yeah, but I'm excited that Alexander Skarsgård is in it because I think he is like Hollywood is awash with like handsome actors who they're kind of trying to make into movie stars and it's not quite happening but i think he's the one who's like has the most actual charisma i think he's like a really like tom hiddleston is like just a sort of handsome posh guy yeah but i think like alexander skarsgård's actually like got a bit of movie star glamour to him tom hiddleston looks like he makes movies in order to be on graham norton's sofa rather than yeah exactly the other way around yeah and uh yeah he's a very Apparently he was very good in Big Little Lies. People keep on telling me to watch that. He did like a good, like menacing, enigmatic dude. I think it's, you know, he's a very enigmatic character. I can see him playing a sexy spy. 
yeah in his I, wheelhouse the thing i think is very cool about this is that i don't know it's quite unusual for this uh a-list prestige director to work on a bbc drama series has yeah. that happened before well the nine manager was Susanna white who's like sort of but it's Danish, still but like he's much more of a because he's and he's, um kenneth lonergan just did howard's end on the bbc Oh, right. Oh, really? Is that Kenneth Lonergan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I watched the first episode of that and was not blown away by it at all. But, I mean, that's actually a good example in a way because there's there's such a sort of BBC style yeah, and it's yeah, very yeah. televisual and it always feels like they are pulling a few tricks from the movies, but it doesn't quite sell itself as being truly mean, cinematic. Yeah. Uh, whereas Park Chan-wook, I can't really imagine him making anything that isn't like that. Everything in this movie will be red. This scene, completely green. Yeah, it's going to be, like, surely it will be, like, a visually striking movie. And it would just be, ex- um, sorry, TV series. So it just be exciting to, uh, to to watch, some like, something that comes out of the BBC that doesn't feel like it's out of the BBC stable in that way. I think this, like, television auteur thing, it, it sort of fits into what you were talking about, about how, like, TV and movies are becoming increasingly interchangeable in terms of their approach to stories and yeah the, the prestige that's associated with them also i think like because it's so into the night manager you need someone as like singular as potch and work just to like if it was just like the team by the night manager are making this i'd be like eh, you know right <laughs> sure yeah yeah yeah. i'll watch it but uh you know i'm not gonna expect too much but i'm like ooh, potch and work don't mind if i do yeah and also florence Pugh is playing the young actress who is um probably best known as the main character in lady macbeth lady macbeth uh, and she was also in the falling uh, that previous movie and I can very much imagine her. She's got quite a sort of like captivating stare. She's got a she's got a certain amount of screen presence. For the sexy lingering shots between these two sexy actors. Exactly. I can really imagine her fitting Ooh. into that Chan Wook world, you know. And it, and I wonder if it will have a sort of gothic, have that like gothic stake element. And we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but I know that sounds that sounds really cool. I think between the two of these thrilling sounding uh, television projects, that this is much the more enticing sounding one. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. So, Mudbound. This is a uh, sort of Oscar-looking prestige historical drama type thing, directed by Dee Rees, who is uh, best known as um, a writer on some television series like Empire and. I think she's made a couple of movies before. This is probably her most prominent made project. Pariah, which apparently is quite good. Right, yeah. Bit of an Ava DuVernay character where, like, did some indie movies and then given a lot bigger budget for this. Yes, and is a, black, is, a, is a black woman. Yeah, <laughs> Well, a lot of the press around it is like, we don't need, we've got another Ava DuVernay. It seems yeah, to be yeah, like because, yeah, because there's so, there's so few and far between exactly. black, black female directors. And it's based on a novel by a writer called Hilary Jordan. It follows two families in rural Mississippi, who work on a farm. One one is white and one is black. They both send off a son to World War II. Jamie McCallan, who's played by Garrett Hedlund, and Ronsell Jackson, who's played by Jason Mitchell. And when the men return from the war, they uh, struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, and Ronsell has to deal with racism, and it's a sort of melting pot of, of poverty and, you know, Mississippi racist... Uh, culture scorching heat and scorching emotions lots of mud there's a ton of mud here is a clip of the two soldiers meeting for the first time shortly after they return to the town ronzel epson jim mckellen henry's brother pleasure to meet you you walk here yes let me give you a lift uh, so you you saw this London Film Festival? 
Jossor this at the London Film Festival. And I had to wait in line to watch on Netflix like a regular chump because uh, I missed it at the festival. And I have to say I did not care for this film at all. <laughs> <Not like it>. <laughs> <laughs> I found it a bit of a slog. It's like two hours and 50 minutes long. It's been very well received generally. Yeah. Critically, but I did not particularly see the appeal of it. And I, it's got... You can really tell that it's adapted from a novel. There is no way that this film would be made as it is if it, if it hadn't been based on a novel. And it almost feels like it's been self-consciously made to have a novelistic feel to it. And it's got a very heavy use of voiceover and also this kind of sprawling structure where it just sort of follows their lives as it kind of like drifts along and then doesn't focus for a very long time. And that feels like the sort of thing you can do in a novel. But a movie needs to be different yeah. i think they've trying to like give it this like novelistic feel but it feels as though that is a conscious effort to give weight to something make it feel meaningful the film lingers on everything yeah. and lingers on their lives and the the voiceover feels like the film is telling you everyone in this film has got this rich psychology but rather than just showing the psychology of the characters by their you know behaviors and like the words they actually say they just have this kind of poetic, lyrical, melancholic voiceover, which ironically has the effect of making them all seem the same. Since they're in mind, in their minds, they just talk like the writer Hillary Jordan, you know, yeah, like exactly. they, they all kind of sound the same. And yeah, it's it takes a very long time to get to the initial setup. And I didn't look at a um, synopsis or whatever before watching the movie, so I wasn't quite sure what was going on, like where it was where it was headed. And it and eventually realized that it was about mainly about these two soldiers, but sort of also about the people around them. But it had spent so much time setting up everything else that all of that other detail ends up feeling completely extraneous. And it doesn't like once it focuses in on what it wants to say, it's already giving you this like tons of stuff, which you, you watch feeling like it's deleted scenes, basically. Yeah, I think like basically it's sprawling in the sense that like, but by sprawling out, everything is like too thin. It's di- like, di- diluted. Yeah, it's like a piece of toast, but there wasn't enough butter to cover all of it. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I think like the movie does have like some successes, mainly in the performances. They're all excellent. And they're like individual scenes that it's like basically like I, you couldn't like direct the scene any better, I think. But the scene itself just isn't that good to begin with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're squinting at me there. like. Well, it's just I, it's quite flatly directed, I think. Like, um, yeah. And when it kind of gets into the final stretch, as you're saying, the movie's like, okay, now this is what the film's about. And it feels like there's so much potential dramatic possibility in the setting. And probably the most successful element of it is the fact that it kind of shows how the racism is so like every day and all the white characters, with the exception of Pappy, the uh, sort of Jim Crow loving racist, is like they're just trying to like survive they're just all existing in these little small worlds and then when these characters who've been you know to europe and seen world war ii come back like the rest of the world has moved on and it's like they're stepping back in time yeah and you can see the rich drama that could come out of that yeah but it just never quite get gets into gear and you're just like the whole movie like come on here yeah yeah and it's just as you're saying it becomes a bit of a slog it's very it's kind of it's got a very turgid feel to it and um it does. I think one of the things that is disappointing about it is that it feels like there's so much potential here, and that every time it's threatened to become more nuanced, it it didn't. And by the film's conclusion, it has this 
very emphatic, very violent conclusion to the movie, which is powerful in that it's shocking, but it's it feels like the ob- the most obvious thing you could have happen in the film. Yeah, there's an inevitability towards like the final stretch of the movie, which is just yeah, where it's just like they 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 sort of ramp up the visceral horror of the action that happens on screen in a way that is sort of compensating for the fact that it's completely unsurprising that this that this would happen, and it leaves you wondering because it because that shows you what the movie was about basically it leaves you wondering why they had these long scenes setting up other stuff and these like languid voiceovers from these characters who ultimately have don't do anything like carrie mulligan who's in the movie uh her husband played by jason clark is this guy he gets his own voiceover but it's only like one i think (laughs) and it doesn't have it's not like anything to do with the plot it's just ruminating a little bit on farming or something like that as if to say that he's important to the story as well but his behavior in the film, while at the start he is interesting in, in that it shows the kind of everyday sense of ownership that white people felt over black people, whereas he isn't as like overtly racist and abusive as like his own father, for yeah, example. Like he doesn't hate black people because he doesn't think about them. He just he, just, he, he, ha- he can't think about them enough to hate he them. He just sees them like like basically like dogs or animals yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that. Like not he doesn't hate them, but he just doesn't treat them as like, you know, as, as human, basically, as fully human. And so, you know, there's there's some there's some kind of interesting thing there, but it ends up being like flattened out by the movie. And then by the end, he hasn't done or said anything notable. And it's like, why do we spend so much time getting to know this guy? Yeah. And there's there's so much plot involved in like Carrie Mulligan and him getting together and they're trying to buy this place and they end up on the you know this other farm. And like there's so much set up just that you could just do with a scroll of text at the beginning of the movie or like one line of dialogue. And it makes no difference. Yeah, I think that's. Um, it's kind of speaks to a large problem in the movie is that because it takes up it's such a long period of time the movie covers like whatever problem they face like by the time the movie's cut ahead it's just been resolved yeah like, <laughs> you know what I mean it's like yeah. this thing's gonna happen it's like well in 10 minutes it will fade to a, like, a year ahead yeah, that's yeah making it's like a similar problem with biopics you find where like you know whatever dramatic stakes it has it just like leavened by the fact that like, well they're gonna be here for another 50 years yeah so. they, they got over it they got over it yeah yeah completely I also felt like the characters eventually fall into archetypes and they're basically good guys and bad guys in this movie and that that really goes against the whole sense of this like complex setting and this huge cast of characters like you want there to be strong contrast between them and they're essentially the melancholic noble soulful types or uh, grumpy cold racist types there's yeah. very few characters that don't fit one of those two molds, including like the children and stuff, you know. So it just feels like this sort of middle brow weepy novel that is just trying to like push a few buttons, but that it's contained within this uh, weighty subject matter because it's about, you know, horrible racism and like a brutally racist society and like post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff like that. That like gives it a sort of bit of extra importance because of the, the, the element, the, constitu- the constitutive elements of it. But I've just found it very boring, very hard to get on with. Yeah, didn't care for it. But I don't know. I felt like you you had a slightly more positive well, feeling about like, the movie. I didn't. I didn't hate it, but like I don't know. I mean, I did see it on a big screen, and it's like very beautifully shot. And I just was kind of like, it's got a very thick strain of like melodrama to it, which I was kind of entertained by. Very much it was so. Like yeah. a sort of you know, uh, quite overripe in a way, which I kind of found entertaining. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of you know that was enough to like carry me through like the experience but yeah i mean like sitting down to watch it on my laptop i might have been tempted just to you know 
makeup tea. I did find okay. myself like just you know checking Twitter and stuff. I yeah, was yeah. I couldn't get into it. No, I think I yeah, I think I think I think watching it, I think it would have been better if I'd have seen it in the cinema definitely because you had to like sit down and like invest it in <laughs> stuff. And I just put it on my laptop and I was like, oh my god, what? I mean, it, you know, I didn't hate it that much, but it just it was hard to invest in. But it's available for free. So watch it or don't. It's available for free. I mean, what you were saying uh, earlier that. In, in a way, it seems like a positive development if what looks like the sort of um, relatively boring Oscar bait type movies are now movies about racism. And yeah. that's like, you know, there's like a lot of these kinds of films being made. And that is a positive development away from Oscar bait. It's just about how great Hollywood is, which is obviously less good subject matter. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it has, has that to be said for it. And, you know, and if it's successful, it's good to see like more diversity in terms of Hollywood directors and on screen and yeah, so yeah, on I and want all, to all like that this stuff movie is to be applauded more than I do. yeah 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 me as well Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw you're gonna hear them in a moment or so there could be angry disagreements but their views are normally quite close let's join share between two podcast brothers do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other the night is on the guys are in so let the chat One sweeping epic to another. Onto a onto a real film. Onto a real fucking movie. Real movie for grown-ups. Justice League. Justice all League. All in. They're finally here. They're all, all here. Your favorite characters. Much anticipated film. This is the sequel to Batman v Superman. If you haven't seen that movie, I'm going to spoil some of the details of that. Superman died. Superman he died. died. He's dead. And in the wake of his death, it seems like the world's gone a bit How gloomy. How could you kill Superman? bit gloomy like just crime is happening a bit more because like people have lost hope i don't know it's not the sort of happy world of joy it was when superman was alive (laughs) as as portrayed in batman v superman but um unfortunately like an evil cgi monstrosity called steppenwolf voiced by kieran hines he's got to collect some uh, boxes boxes picking up his he's picking up his boxes mother boxes free mother boxes yeah he's ordered them from amazon and he's got his like slips yeah but he wasn't in so he wasn't in he's got got to go down to the depot (laughs) (laughs) and bring his id keeps forgetting his id um batman uh has to join forces with wonder woman aquaman and the flash and and, cyborg Cyborg. don't forget cyborg Cyborg, (laughs) uh to form a little league to battle this evil you know in case he uh, takes over the world here is a clip of um, Batman recruiting Aquaman. Batman recruiting Aquaman. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You do a dress like a bat, like, a, like an actual bat. Worked for 20 years in Gotham. The fight comes, we'll need you. Don't count on a Batman. Why not? Because I don't like you coming here, digging into my business, getting into my life. People from Atlantis tell me to do this, now you say do that. I want to be left alone. That way you help these people out here in the middle of nowhere, because you can just leave. I help them because no one else does. If you want to protect them, you need to work with me. Strong man as strong as alone. You ever heard that? Hey, no. dude, just fuck off, okay? I'm, I'm having fun with my... <laughs> just go away, okay? I don't like you. I'm hanging out with my fish. All right. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's not enough of them for a league. You know what I mean? Isn't, yeah. isn't a league more people? Like, I feel just, like a, whole, a whole league. It's just his team, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, just his team. Even the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has more people in it than this league. It's, a five, it's fucking five of them. That's not a league. That's not a league, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, DC has managed to make the three worst films of the last two years, which is something of an achievement. So it's oh, a total man. mess. And we could spend a long time chronicling like 
the many many problems this film had in production yeah um which is like originally supposed to be two movies but then they saw the batman v superman uh, response and they're like shit we got to cut this down to one film the villain was changed there were uh, massive reshoots Zack schneider suffered a personal tragedy his daughter from his first marriage uh, sadly died so he had to step away from the production and joss whedon came in to oversee all these reshoots and the official line is that he up to 20% of the movie is Joss Whedon, but you sense it's a lot more. more. Yeah. And also, I feel like the 25 million figure is low. Yeah. They'd probably be embarrassed to admit how much they money they spend, but it must have been more than that. Also, most comically of all, Henry Cavill couldn't shave his moustache. He'd grown for Mission Impossible 6. So the reshoots were shot with him with a big tash, which have been been CGI'd out, but not well not enough. Well. The, the, and there's a lot of unfinished CGI in the movie, yeah. which yeah, is yeah, comical. Yeah. It's, like down to, it's like Matrix Reloaded levels of CGI. In yes. terms of um, how but, bad it is. Which you can't really blame the VFX artist for because it feels like they had a week to do this. They probably whatever. were doing a lot of sleepless nights work on that moustache. Because um, it's like almost every single scene featuring Superman has had this. So out of the maelstrom of that kind of chaotic schedule, you can imagine the kind of movie that would emerge from it. And it is that film. It's both bad in design and execution. Yeah. With very few redeeming features. Very few. It's pretty much about as bad as anybody was expecting. And I think the reviews have been too kind to it. Because it's got this reception, which I feel like there's a sense of pity towards yeah. the film from reviewers. And they're like, it's not come, it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. at least there's a few jokes. The tone is a bit lighter. And you just feel like there's this feeling of goodwill because they've been so bruised. They've produced so many awful films. <laughs> and like, and everyone hates them. And they just feel bad for them. And, it, and they've, they're trying to please you. You know, the, the, the DC is bending over backwards. They're doing these drastic course corrections every five seconds, constantly trying to please you. And I feel like there's this spirit now of like, you're just hitting them while they're down. Yeah. And nobody wants to give this movie like one star, but it is dreadful. I mean, it's <laughs> terrible. Like it is, there's almost nothing that you could say that's good about it. It's got that weird feeling of, I think it's, it's a feature of modern blockbusters to look expensive and cheap. And yeah. it's often true of Marvel movies in, in parts because they have this assembly line feel to them where they sort of made a bunch of elements and then chopped and changed them and did little bits of reshoots and it's all to fit some sort of grand plan where they like, you know, someone writing the next movie changed a detail and they had to go back and reshoot it or whatever. It's all these kinds of things. Sure. So you always, you watch like some of their movies where there's certain scenes and you feel like they were rushed. I mean, that was in true in Thor Ragnarok, it's true in Ant-Man, you know, and then they often have this like Age of Ultron also had this feeling to it where they had to make cuts and changes and like parts of the movie don't really make sense anymore. So it's not unique to Justice League by any means, this feeling of watching a film which cost all the money in the world and still looks like garbage. But it's like much more emphasized in this film. And it's, it's such a sort of, I think it's like a particularly problematic in a way because it's so contrary to Zack Snyder's visual aesthetic. Yeah. So like Batman v Superman, which is also a catastrophic mess and also was fucked with enormously in the edit. But it's all, at least it's all Snyder. So it feels like visually unified and it's got that thing, you know, it all feels storyboarded and like... Yeah, he like, executed the plan. He executed <laughs> the plan. I mean, you know, it was obviously recut afterwards and stuff. But in this film, because Joss Whedon came in and he's got this flat TV style of like directing. Yeah. And, he, and he's, he's also got a journeyman role. You know, he's not, it's not like the Avengers or whatever where he just had creative control over, the, over it. Yeah. Um, and so the reshoots cannot possibly have that Snyder feel to it of like, you know, this sort of guy, this man-child nerding out. 
you know, which is his aesthetic is ugly as hell, but it's distinctive. And so when it's mixed with these like flat green screen reshoots of nothing, you, you notice them all the more. Um, and basically that Ackerman sequence, I think, is the best bit in the movie, even though it isn't good solely because it feels like it was storyboarded. They went to a physical location in the world. They shot people. It came out roughly how they imagined. And it just feels like, you know, it made a certain amount of sense. I mean, maybe they did do reshoots on it or whatever, but it's just like, feels like a, you're watching a film where they had an idea and they did it. But it's like, I, they can't, hard to think of fainter praise, you know, than just like individual scenes of plot development didn't make me embarrassed. And, and, and like, that was the overriding emotion I felt through the rest of the movie. It's impossible not to be conscious of how the film was made. And I just felt like quite strong embarrassment on the behalf of almost everyone involved in it. Yeah, but I feel like even though a lot of the stuff is obviously subject to this ridiculous, chaotic post-production situation, like the new characters they've introduced are like very badly done. Yeah, and, and that, uh, that probably would have always been true. Yeah, so like Aquaman is like this sort of obnoxious, like jock surfer bro. I'm a dude. Fuck you, my man. Yeah. Oh God, he's so annoying. And uh, Ezra Miller, who is an excellent actor, you know, we've seen him do brilliant work before he's like been forced into this sort of comedy psychic role and all his lines aren't funny and he's like desperately sort of like trying to make these lines funny but the attempt of doing that just makes them more irritating yeah he's very he's very irritating and, as well uh, he's a he's, he reminds me of like the cat denny's character from thor the dark world oh you know God. like the one who's like referencing pop culture all the time they took my ipod i just had like five new songs on my ipod i had all my favorite facebook's on there yeah exactly so, you know, seeing these group of characters come together is just, like, not at all exciting. And you'd already seen the three, you best know... Ones. The best ones. Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. The ones with the most pop culture notoriety for good reasons because, like, you know, they, those they characters resonate with yeah, yeah, audiences yeah. in a way these other three random ones don't. And so, like, it's just just shit, isn't it? It's just shit. Yeah. <laughs> and all of the, the decisions that they had to make to row back... Um, it feels like cursed in a way because even if them going ahead with their original plan would have been you know, a disaster for the company, there were aspects of that plan that they could not change that makes this not work, basically. Yeah. So if you were doing a single standalone Justice League movie and you hadn't planned two movies, there is no way they would have had Superman die at the end of Batman v Superman yeah, yeah. because the fact that he's dead and has to be brought back in a you know, quote-unquote twist uh, means that he's not in the marketing. So basically the most famous character in the film is not in the marketing. Which is just ridiculous. I mean, they would obviously never, ever have planned it that way. And additionally, the, the, the draw of the whole thing was to do this, like, two-part team-up movie, which is kind of like the, you know, upcoming Avengers two-part movie, but they're sort of getting it in early. And the premise, although a very regular kind of alien attacks the Earth thing, would at least be elevated by the extra sense of occasion where you would have two, it would be two films, and it would give it a sense of scale that might be lacking from other such things, you know? You spend a whole movie building up this threat and then people are super excited for the second one. Like, I, I can imagine, I can understand, you know, yeah, the approach there. But like by truncating it into only a single film where you also have to set up all these characters because like half of them haven't had like standalone movies or whatever beforehand, um, the threat level is commensurately reduced. He doesn't have time to like, you yeah, know, yeah. to be enough of a threat. So well, it's it, a weirdly underpopulated movie. Like it's, the only characters that exist are the 
are the main superheroes. Yeah, There's- which you feel like they noticed, and then therefore Whedon introduced this like Ukrainian family subplot thing where they're like under threat by you know Steppenwolf's like mother boxes. Yeah. It's, it's a movie that's not the cliche of like the president like in the war room or something. Yeah, it doesn't that's have true. like you know, the <laughs> landmarks, earthquakes happening, and you know by the big statue of Jesus or whatever. You know, can't even afford that. We couldn't well, this, afford the. the crowd well, shot. this is the thing. Is like it's about as there's about as much threat to the Earth as in your average episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, and like the first DC movie was much more cataclysmic than this film, and with a Famously. much with a much greater threat. So like they sort of blew their watch right away. Like Man of Steel is like he is fighting a more dangerous foe than in what should be the culmination of something that began with that. Yeah, it's basically it's not a good film because it's not trying to be, and you know it, we'll never know like who and what to blame, whatever. And they're just trying to maybe they're just trying to salvage, and this is the best possible version that could have come out of it but it's like it's just striving to be okay it'll do it, and it doesn't even yeah. achieve that for most of the time so it's kind of like yeah it's like i saw someone on twitter describe it as like aggressively mediocre which i think is like quite accurate it describes its ambitions yeah yeah so uh definitely go see it i mean <laughs> i would say that i laughed like a solid like handful of times out loud i don't know i don't know if it's as overtly comic as uh, either suicide squad or batman v superman which I think Batman v Superman has probably the most like single what the fuck moments of like any blockbuster to come out in recent memory, and it doesn't quite have that. But yeah, the surprise is gone now, you know, from these DC movies. But like... also, it's 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 precisely because they're just aiming to feed and not hate the film. Yeah. So they so there's no there's no chance of this like insane dream sequence that makes no sense, you know, being thrown in halfway through the film. And they're not going to have that. Nor does it explain why the Flash travels back in time to visit Batman in that movie. Like this movie does not explain why that happens. In a way, it's always be better. In a they've they've movies. they've shut that story off, and we will never know. We will never know why the Flash visited Superman from the future. That, sorry, visited Batman from the future in that movie, <laughs> which is which is spectacular. So, but it's not as if for that reason. I don't think it's quite as entertaining as uh, as Suicide Squad or Batman v Superman. Although it is probably as bad. But the, the the main the interesting thing about it is the string of disasters. That, that affected it and and the the the, the it's Please, interesting to see somebody it. write a tell book I oh my god i would, I would fucking buy that book in a second <laughs> i think like the defining feature of the movie is henry cavill's uncanny valley lip which just perfectly encapsulates everything about about the it's just this little thing that it just uh, brings together all the disasters you know yeah and every time he's on screen i was just transfixed by it it's so obvious and like I was so, I was kind of interested to see how it was going to turn out, and it's just it could I cannot imagine it, it having been worse than this. It's like someone's got like, the clone tool on Photoshop. Yeah, it is. It is like that. It's so bad. Like <laughs> it's not the You can't that, look away um, from it. You know, it's like that uh, old lady who tried to repaint that picture of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they trusted like one guy. It's like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. They come back and they're like, well, sh- okay, we're exporting tomorrow. <laughs> and like, it's like, okay, just put it in cinemas. We can't. We just have to go with this. Fucking put it out there. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? It's just, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> When Zach heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 
Then we've suffered a couple of disappointments lately. Mudbound and Justice League not living up to expectations. Um, but there is a film on the way that I feel like is not going to let us down. And redeem cinema. It is going to redeem cinema. It's going to be the film of the year, whether it comes out this year or next year. It's going to be the film of that year. Uh, Dan Noel pointed us towards this. The film is called Best Friend from Heaven. Uh, here is the synopsis, as it says on IMDb. When a tragic accident takes the life of her dog... Tara is forced to cancel her wedding. That raises a lot of questions right away. With a little help from above, their small town rallies together to make sure these two are able to have the wedding of their dreams. So for some reason, that's being a bit coy about the central premise of the film. But essentially, the dog, uh, after death, arrives in the afterlife and then is uh, sent back to, in a, as a sort of like uh, angel from It's a Wonderful Life type thing yeah. to, to, to rescue humans. And the dog is voiced by Chris Christopherson. Uh, who just sounds fucking hilarious? <laughs> and it's they it's, went around his house. <laughs> they went around his house. He's just he just yeah. It's like he's in his underpants. Yeah, he's just woken up. He's got that real like early morning growl, you know. Um, his lines in the trailer seem to be mostly enunciated the same, but it's you know feel a certain amount of affection for it. You know, it just seems like I like the idea that dogs just go to heaven. You know, sure. I mean, I don't believe in afterlife myself, but I hope there's one for one dogs. for dogs. Yeah, I'd rather if I had to choose. If someone was like, you can have an afterlife. It's either for you or dogs. Like, give it to the dogs. Give it to the dogs. Give it straight to they, the dogs. They earn it. You know, they're all good, all morally good creatures. You know? Yeah, very happy, very loving. Twelve, twelve out of ten. Doggo would ruffle the fur <laughs> or whatever the fucking shit on Twitter is. Um, no, no dog ever killed somebody. No dog ever started a war. That's not true. <laughs> Dogs have killed people. So I was just doing that sort of like bullshit, like why like women are better than men. Like no woman is ever. Oh right, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. That sort of argument. I mean, give them the chance. No why not? woman ever run a concentration camp. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so we're gonna leave you with a bit of that trailer. Watch out for the line. I can talk now. This is the dog utters at one point <laughs> once he learns to talk. It's pretty good. <laughs> And have a lovely week. Have a lovely week. Um, and watch. Yeah. What are we going to watch? What are we going to do next We're time? We're going to watch Battle of the Sexes. Yes. And I think Happy End, a new Haneke movie is coming out. Oh, cool. So I'll be talking all about Haneke. Excellent. All right. Until next time, lads. Bye. Bye. Gabe? <laughs> Come here, baby. Want to get married today? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> What is this place? You're walking on a cloud and listening to harps. Oh no. I have to get back there. They need me. Hey guys, I'm back. I can talk now. We miss you, Cape. <laughs> they didn't get married. What are you doing? Did you just talk to me? You can see me? As of right now, you and me, we're in this together. You can help me throw the wedding. I need you to help me fix something, then I have to get back. They can't get married without that. Meet your new employees. What can we do to help? Let's turn this place into a reception. This is going to be a nice wedding. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.